technology now is shaping our societies in increasingly dramatic ways. What are some technologies that make a free society more viable? What do we mean by free society? What criteria must an emergent technology meet in order to achieve this end? A new series on the emerging technologies which make a free society more viable starting this week. Philosophers. Philosophers. You know what, David? It's been a while since we've done a series. A long while. Yes. Almost since, I don't know, Christmas two years ago? Three years ago? Something like that? Three. Three years ago. Three years. Well, you know what? I think it's about time we do another series. I think so. So, this will be kind of the introduction into a series we'd like to do over the next couple of episodes and potentially build on in the future. Um which we're entitling Emerging Technologies That Make a Free Society Viable. So in our typical due diligence fashion, and we'll talk a little bit about what we're talking about, I guess. haven't used that in a while. Um, it has been a little while since we, been, since we used that. Since we're throwing it back. Um, let's start off by talking about what we mean by uh, free society. When we say that, we, we, we use that term a lot. Um, and I think we've defined it a few times. I, I think I think our regular listeners have, have probably caught on by now what we mean when we say a free society. But if you've been referred here by somebody or uh, are jumping around and, and found yourself here, then it may not be quite so obvious. Sure. So what do you think, uh, what would be your best uh, stab at saying what a free society is when we say that? What do you, what do you think we mean? Well, a, a free society is one which hmm that is a good question you can you can say that it has to do with like the the values of the society but that's not necessarily enough um i can think of a, a few different societies where the the people in the society might actually have decent values but it's still a very oppressive society or like regime they live under mm-hmm. so i wouldn't call that a free society um so it's it's not enough to have like personal liberties as a as a value you must actually have them as well so one so a free society is one that is absent any oppressive class or entity uh, maybe sure um i i always like to explain it as a society that values individual freedom above all other things but that even that's not a hundred percent all encompassing of what we talk about. Um, I think one criteria is that there is not a centralized authority, um, and especially not an essentialized authority. Essentialized, <laughs> a, a centralized authority which holds a monopoly on force. Like that, to me, is a prerequisite for a free society. Right, right, because you you've you've immediately broken out of. So I yeah I guess what I really when I say a society without an oppressive class what I mean is a society that doesn't really have class in that sense right um, because as soon as you establish some entity with a monopoly on force you've established them as first class and everyone else is second class to them right and uh, so this would also kind of eliminate all current societies which exist under a government which holds the monopoly on force right. Um, so under some definitions, this would be an anarchal society. Um, 
I know that there are many definitions of the word anarchy that kind of fumble around with what that yeah, means. Yes, that that word anarchy has a lot of baggage. Yes, um, because you can mean no authority, as in no individual authority, which I disagree with. I don't think that's possible, but you know that's not for here. Sure, um, but I mean official authority. Um, Right. Well, I mean, if we if we look at the the etymology of the word, like think of other words that are in this vein. We have monarchy, okay, oligarchy, etc. Monarchy means monarchy doesn't mean one authority; it means one ruler. Right. Anarchy means no rulers. Right. So, this would be a society in which there are no rulers, essentially. Um, be that monarchical, oligarchical democratic even uh there's no government essentially um that's not to say that there are not the same services that governments provide yes but we don't need to make this a whole episode about that (laughs) yeah this episode is not meant to to address the many questions that come up when when someone first encounters this concept of a free society yeah uh we are wanting to talk about some of the technologies specifically emerging technologies i suppose that help make that kind of society more viable because because there isn't i I personally cannot think of an example of an existing free society like i don't know of one that exists really um right now uh but even without having a concrete example we acknowledge that there are problems just like any society has problems free societies have them too um and what we're talking about are ways that technology can solve these problems. Whereas in the past, societies have opted for a government in an attempt to solve some of these problems. So um, a good example of this is uh, societies might recognize that, hey, external group is belligerent. We need protection. So instead of every person being a one-man army, we, we elect to have a a standing army a standing army yeah um we have you know and so on and so forth so these are not those solutions we're, we're looking at modern solutions to modern problems or maybe or maybe not so modern problems. maybe not so modern and we, we sort of talked about this this uh recently a couple of episodes ago when we talked about uh contracts and whether they were enforceable according to the non-aggression principle basically actually that that's where we should have started a free society is one that adopts the non-aggression principle fair yeah um and the non-aggression principle being the principle that it is morally wrong to initiate force against another person there you go um now how this society does this is not really what we're talking about because you know there are potential issues of well okay is there like a constitution that everyone decides to follow without any type of enforcement, you know, any like centralized enforcement, you know, how does that work? You know, and that's a different, that's tough for a different time, I guess. And we, we probably just need to do an episode at some point on like just a free society TM, you know what I mean? Um, but we're going to be focusing on the technologies that help with that. So um, we're also only focusing really in this series on technologies, which make a free society viable now there are plenty of technologies that can help transition to a free society which don't necessarily solve a problem in a free society or they're just they're they're nice to haves um 
and we already have them and they can work within existing societal structures as well without necessarily uh, causing a free society to be viable. So um, when we're talking about that, some of the concepts behind technologies which make transitioning to a free society more viable without necessarily making the free society more viable itself are things like difficult to regulate technologies. Um, so some examples of this, do you have any examples of like a hard to regulate technology, for example? Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by hard to regulate because lawmakers will regulate whatever they feel like. Effectively regulate, I should say, because you can write a regulation for something that is very difficult to enforce. Like one of the things that I think about a lot is the internet, for example. Yes, there are entities that have attempted to regulate the internet, but the internet by its nature being mostly global is very hard for one country to regulate. Right. Think about something like the DMCA. So the DMCA regulates uh, how you may share certain types of information on the internet among other places. Right. Um, China does not have to obey the DMCA. Right. And so that this has been an ever-present problem for people who have a have a business interest in the protections offered by the DMCA. Mm-hmm. Um, is that as soon as somebody from China gets their hands on it, well, they can do what they want and they can't be punished under the law. Right. Uh, another good example would be some countries have put in place uh, communications decency standards, which is like the the name they give it, where your speech on the internet is subject to litigation based on what you've said. But if you live in a country that doesn't have one of these things, you're... What are you going to do? Come get me? Yeah. You know, like like a good example is I think the UK has a communications decency standard or act or something like that where... Yeah. Um, and, and people like Count Dankula have become famous for being litigated under this uh, this law. But if, if he were an American, it wouldn't have mattered. You know, I can say things as an American on the internet that would run me afoul in many countries, but they can't come get me because the laws in my country permit it. So I guess not just uh, being hard to regulate, but this specifically being supranational like or international it doesn't fit into one boundary of one country makes it a lot easier. makes it a lot harder to regulate, to regulate as a whole. Um, And that helps because people that live in countries that may attempt to regulate this would see that it's not regulated elsewhere. Cause that's the other thing too, is people like, for example, uh, in, in the people's Republic of China, talking about subject certain subjects like that happened in you know the 1980s for example uh in Gee, I, can't, I can't think of any particular incident that you you're know, referring to in particular square shaped areas i don't know um you know uh you, you can't really talk about that on the internet in in china but i can talk about it you know and people can still see it there like it's hard the, the you know the chinese government runs a really good censorship shop where they work very, very hard to prevent certain pieces of information from coming in. But it's not its not that that information is leaking in. It's that it's always available. And all it takes is someone going off grid of, you know, the Chinese internet to get to it. And it's there, you know. Uh, so it makes, really, it makes it really difficult for information to be hidden um, by one group or the other. So uh, there are technologies like that, which are just very innately hard to regulate. Uh, another good one is um, 
I, I think this, and this may not be 100% true, but copyright enforcement of code is relatively difficult. Um, so I'll let you talk a little bit more about that because you're way more in the open source and open software camp than I am, um, or you've been in it a lot longer. But from the, an outsider's perspective, you putting a license at the top of a piece of code is seemingly very difficult to go enforce. Um, would you say that that's the case? It depends. Um, like, well, do you, do you mean, it, it depends on the terms of the license. So like some licenses are going to be difficult to even find offenders for. Um, like if you, if you have a very permissive license, then it's going to be hard for someone to violate the terms in the first place. Or if they do, it's going to be in a way that automatically involves you. So like most of these uh, free software licenses have a warranty disclaimer as part of their text. So then if someone tries to sue you and make a warranty claim, well, now you're already directly involved and you just tell the judge, hey, I disclaimed this right here. We're done. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, there's going to be there's going to be others that are going to have specific terms that need enforcement. Um, the more popular ones actually have like nonprofit foundations behind them to to fund legal battles to enforce them. So like the uh, the GPL, the GNU General Public License is one of the really popular um, uh, free software licenses. And so it is so widely used by so many uh, either individual developers but also big companies um, that there's uh, there, there is at least one organization whose only job is GPL enforcement. They get money and whenever uh, someone violates the GPL, they will get you a lawyer and make your case. So it can be enforced sometimes. Sometimes. I, I, I think for me looking at it from the outside is the like say I write a piece of software that say I write a compression piece of software that all it does is compress data. Right. That's right. a that's a common piece of code that you see there's many different algorithms and ways ways to do this sure hundreds i'm sure hundreds i'm sure yeah um if that code makes it anywhere onto the internet someone else could use that code and without my permission but me finding out who's doing it is very hard to start um because i can't just go sniffing all the code to see well how is your how does your code work you know like you know it, it's not that easy a lot of the times uh yeah, it depends. Like, I mean, if someone if someone writes a program that outputs a file that is compressed in your super duper secret format, then you can probably just look at the output and tell, oh, this is using my format. But just because it's using your format doesn't mean that it will all... I, 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 I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole on this. But what I'm trying to get at is that I think the core thing that makes copywriting of software so difficult is not so much it's difficult to copyright but how easy it is to copy code. And the fact that software as a concept is just an idea. It's just information. But the widespread availability of machines that can actually do work with the software, it's fairly ubiquitous. And the ability to turn this general machine to do a specific job is as simple as running a piece of code on it. And that code can be copied for free. Software, that's like the biggest differentiation in my mind between software machines and hardware machines is that I can't just clone a hardware machine for free. There's an, there is 
and it's innate, made of stuff that you have to go get. Exactly. It, there's an innate cost because it's physical. Software by itself, by being free to copy because it's just information, save like the few little bits of, you know, literal bits of space on a hard drive, you know, it, it, you can then make it ubiquitous and it can be used anywhere. So, for example, like the, you, you talked about that issue before, like the DMCA doesn't apply in China, for example. Just because I come up with an idea in software and I start running it in the United States to make profit, even though I tell people, no, you can't copy this. And this is kind of leaning on the old issue, the, the other issue of, you know, these things aren't necessarily internationally enforceable. You know, someone in China could just pick it up and start running it and making a profit too, you know. And, and we talked a little bit about intellectual property before. That aside, a society in which tools and better ways of doing things can be quickly spread and quickly adopted like software can be lends itself to a more productive society regardless of how you feel about the copyrightness of you know copyrights or intellectual property rights while you're arguing about it there are now two people doing things better than they did them before so not not to get too utilitarian here but software as a concept and as a technology and with that general purpose machines which can just run software without needing to know have any kind of special hardware enabled it, it is one of those things that can really help i think transition into a free society but mm -hmm. you know i don't want to spend too much time talking about it because that's actually not what we're looking at uh, as in this series computers are not an emerging technology no um but it depends on they have definition. emerged already <laughs> um so let's talk about what we are going to be talking about in in this series which is emerging technologies that make a free society viable that's like kind of the two uh criterion for this subject uh, they have to be emerging and they have to make a free society more viable well emerging it's pretty straightforward as you had hinted you know it's either emerged or it's emerging like what where would you draw the boundary on that like i guess yeah, I mean, like at, le at least some of the things that we're going to talk about are technologies that have already emerged and have somewhat uh, wide market uptake, but like they're 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 new enough that people are still implementing new technologies on top of them that aid in a in the functioning of a free society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. In that case, we need to look at the other half of our criteria, which is what aspects of these technologies encourage or make viable a free society. And uh, the two that we were able to come up with in the very brief time we, we, we established these criteria were uh, decentralization and affordability. Mm -hmm. um, so the first one, decentralization. Right, because it doesn't matter how awesome your decentralized technology is. The thing about decentralized technology is you need lots of different peers to operate them. Even if it's directly peer-to-peer -peer or if it's federated, you you have to have people to actually run it. So if it's prohibitively expensive to do it, then you're wasting your time. Right. So what does it mean? What, what do we mean when we say uh, decentralization? Decentralized. So it doesn't depend on a central authority. Um which sort of goes on to our whole definition of a free society to begin with is we shouldn't have to depend on central authorities. So, um, so I already mentioned, I, I mentioned the two classes of decentralized technologies, federated technologies and peer to peer. 
So peer-to-peer -peer is very straightforward. I talk to you, that's peer-to-peer. -peer. Um, whereas uh, federated technology alleviates some of the um, like the performance hits associated with peer-to-peer -peer technology. Because peer-to-peer -peer technology is slow because you have to find the peers to talk to. Um, and often there's going to be lots of, well, at least with the way the internet is currently structured, um, there's going to be a lot more uh, uh, paths that your uh, your information has to travel through in order to get to to the other peer, and and it takes time for information to propagate across a peer-to-peer -peer network. With a federated network, you can sort of get the best of both worlds, um, with a, with another slight cost. Um, but a, a federated network is where you have a bunch of little central authorities that all work with one another. Um, so I can connect to your server that does the thing. And, and, and as far as my computer is concerned, or whatever I'm using to, con to connect to it, it's just like I'm dealing with a central authority. I have an account on your server, and, uh, and I interact with it. If the server goes down, then I'm down. Sure. That's how it is. So, um, but it is also talking with other servers as part of the federated network. Um, so if I want to talk to my friend in, I don't know, Peru, then he can use a server, a Peruvian server that will eventually find its way and talk to you, um, and can get messages between us. And so that, you know, another advantage that that, that, that solves another problem, a problem with peer to peer technologies is that if I want to send a message to you on a peer to peer network, we both have to be online at the same time for that to go through. With a federated network, you can still leverage the advantages of centralized things with store and forward message systems, mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah, and so in a way, it's almost like there are there's the peer-to-peer -peer network of the quote central authorities. So they're all talking to each other, right? But instead of in the past, instead of it being me talking to everyone, I'm just going to talk to the cent my nearest authority and it's going to talk to everyone else in its area and instead of everyone else outside its area having a one-to-end connection there it'll just talk to their representative central authorities but the important thing also to recognize about this and why it's truly decentralized even though it's pseudo centralized the barrier to entry to be a member of the federated network or to be a federated server to host a server is a lot lower than hosting the whole central authority, hosting all of the centralized authority. So, right. Or being, uh, like being authorized to set up a franchise for something like that. Right. Like maybe there's a deal I can set up with, let's say Facebook. If I want to set up my own, uh, uh, server for that, uh, for reasons I don't know why I would do that, but whatever. I might be able to make a, a a contract with them that lets me run my own Facebook server, but I'm still part of their central platform. And if their if their central platform goes down, the whole thing is down. Right. Um. And of course, I don't have absolute control over over what happens on on the network either. Right. So that's I think uh one of the biggest things about why decentralization matters as well is that we are lacking the central central authority and then federation is just a way that you can decentralize your decentralization a little bit more and uh or partially centralize your decentralization but in a decentralized way right so you can you can keep you can keep the benefits that come with having centralized servers that is um that like the peer-to-peer technologies use more resources for the end user 
Right. So you can you can offload that to someone who does have the resources to spare. Right. Um, and be able to do that. Exactly. Um, and then the last, the other criterion we talked about was affordability. And and we kind of hit on that a little bit yeah. uh, when we talked about peer-to-peer uh, and how it's not very viable if all of the end users have to shoulder a large cost. Uh, right. My example that I brought up uh, uh, earlier, it might have been before the show, um, was like we, we've had the ability to have decentralized uh, wireless communications for a long time. Just build your own radio station. That's really expensive. Right. Um, but one of the things, and, and we're also going to run up against a lot of like other emerging technologies or emergent technologies that help with these things. Um, for example, cell phones. Cell phones are personal computers in, in all senses of the word. They right. are. Uh, and to think of them as just a smarter phone is kind of selling them short for what they can actually do. Um, but the fact that they are so affordable that everyone has at least one pretty much these days, that environment makes things like that. The affordability creates an environment that makes certain decentralized things like peer to peer possible. When everyone's carrying around a multi-core processor with sufficient Ram and memory and can both list, talk to a central network like your cellular network and also talk in a peer to peer fashion via things like, like most phones these days can even do two way or uh, dual channel Wi-Fi. They can talk. They can talk out on Wi-Fi and host their own Wi-Fi network right. or Bluetooth. These kinds of things create environments, and we'll get it a little bit more when we start talking about like the high levels of the things we're going to for sure talk about uh, about how that's useful. But the fact that it's affordable creates an environment that makes that enhances the capabilities of a decentralized platform. So. Um, let's talk a little bit about the three that we're for sure going to talk about, uh, the three concepts or technologies. And, uh, this is in no way to limit us to these three. Uh, we just didn't want to add any more to the list at the moment. Um, because like I said, I'm sure that we're going to add new ones. And, uh, before we get into that, I want to, I don't want to like, I, I don't believe that you need to have necessarily credentials in an area to talk about something. You know, if you have the information, you can share that information, but I do think, um, it would behoove us to take a moment to talk a little bit about why we are, or at least in our estimation, somewhat more qualified to talk about this area of subject. You know, it makes me think of uh, Paul Harrell a little bit, you know, a lot of these opinions are our opinions and that we absolutely do not hold the monopoly on uh, truth. Right. We're not arbiters of truth. We're not arbiters of truth, but we do have some, pretty specific experience in some of these areas um yeah it's i think we mentioned it on the show before we're both software developers yes so we're we're intimately familiar with computers and their limitations and, and their capabilities yes um more specifically we're both employed software developers slash software wow, engineers yeah, okay. yeah there you go um who have been working in the industry for some time uh Granted, we're not veterans necessarily in the industry by any means, but I think it, it reminds me of the, that show Mythbusters that says between the two of them, they have over 100 years of experience, which doesn't mean a whole lot. If you have a team of five people, each right. with 20 years of experience, that's, that's 100 a, years. Yeah, sure. Um, but I would say between of a, between the two of us, we have over a decade of experience in the <laughs> software industry. <laughs> um, 
and in some aspects, the hardware industry as well. Like we, we both have worked either professionally or of our own accords with electronics in the hardware verse and in developing software in the software verse. So we're not just reading articles and armchairing about that. You know, this, if anything, might make you think twice about some of our more philosophical talks, but uh, <laughs> at least in this subject, we, we are versed. Yeah, we might have just discredited ourselves by... <laughs> a little bit, but um, I don't know. I, I think becoming versed in software is harder than becoming versed in philosophy, so shots fired there, and we'll move into what we're actually going to cover a little bit. So the, fir- uh, the three things we for sure want to cover are strong cryptography, blockchain technology, and mesh networking in the scope of portable computers. Um, So uh, what do we mean when we talk, when we're, when we're saying the emerging technology of strong cryptography? Um, So cryptography, uh, cryptography has been around for a long time, but cryptography has not always been strong and strong cryptography has not always been easy to do. Um, Like, you know, you have real, not to, not to go through a whole uh, uh, brief history of cryptography, but. Which I'm sure we will, when we talk about strong cryptography possibly um <laughs> right but i mean like for for a long time like anyone can come up with weak cryptography like a cesarean cipher which is where you just shift all the letters in your message off by some certain offset but it doesn't take very long to just figure out what the number is and then now you can decode any of the messages that were written in it so strong cryptography is is based on uh number theory usually um and so th- this employs something that is, or th- this strong cryptography leverages a mathematical system that has been constructed in such a way that it is easy to encode a message, but the degree to which it's proven is sometimes up for debate. But <laughs> I'm going to, for brevity's sake, say proven to require lots of computational work to decode without the secret uh the, without the secret either a shared secret or a not shared secret we can get into that later and for the sake of brevity a secret you could think of also as a key it's not always a key necessarily that has a speci- that has a specific meaning in in this terminology but that's why it's know. the secret just like the secret for the cesarean cipher is the number the offset right yeah so just yeah and a lot of times when we talk about strong cryptography one of the things that i think is proven is that anything can be decrypted eventually but that's not what we're talking about this takes into consideration how long it would take yeah and times time frames like oh before the death of the universe or it takes longer than the presumed death of the universe is considered good enough um and but also but also probably like if it's a few centuries that's probably good enough right even if I do somehow live that long, the information is going to be long irrelevant by the time it's ever decoded. Exactly. And so that's what we're kind of talking about. And, and we'll get more into that. Um, one of the specifics you had mentioned that's going to come up is the the onion router technology, uh, or TOR, as it's yes. more commonly, I guess, referred to. Um, that'll be interesting to discuss. Um, for blockchains, the two things we're going to kind of really nail down are cryptocurrencies which i'm sure any anyone and everyone's kind of at least heard of cryptocurrencies these days hence why we're doing strong cryptography first it's kind of a prerequisite topic right blockchain technology depends on strong cryptography yes the whole system breaks down if we can't trust our cryptography 
Right. Um, and the other thing under the blockchain we're going to discuss are smart contracts. Um, and this is something that you and I have been discussing a little more frequently recently. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to save it for the episode, but it's going to be an interesting episode, mm-hmm. I think. Um, because when you start talking about smart contracts, we can start talking things like DeFi or decentralized finance. Uh decentralized insurance um, decentralized exchanges uh, a lot of things that have to do with decentralization are very strong within the uh smart contract frame yeah that's the whole point so um not to spoil it but we'll, we'll get there when we get there and it's going to be a heckin good time as we <laughs> like to say i guess uh, and then the last thing uh mesh networking now i we put mesh working mesh networking Net, mesh working really that, that, <laughs> i think we just coined a term we did yeah because if you can't type bother typing five characters including the space before mesh before the word networking you can just call it networking i'm gonna just start doing that now i guess please don't um the title we were working with was mesh networking and portable computers because this one really leans on the fact that everyone everybody carries a portable computer slash radio in their pocket all the time um and one specific technology we're going to or implementation of this we're going to bring up and talk a little bit about is briar um, which is a mesh networking social media application, which is really interesting on how that works. But what we're essentially getting to is types of networks that don't necessarily have to rely on, again, on a central authority. Um, as long as you and I cross paths or you and I and any number of nodes of people that are between us cross enough paths, we can talk to each other by essentially skipping messages back and forth between each other. Uh, it's a very interesting concept. Um, technologies like this also are very useful during uh, recent political, I say recent, uh, political events like the Arab Spring and the Arab Spring uprisings, depending on how you, you call them. Um, but the ability for people to communicate even when the centralized authority goes down um, with just what they have on them without having to even have any kind of middle authority. Right. Like we talked about with Fediverses or Federation. So um i i think this is going to be a wonderful discussion i'm really looking forward to doing these topics um also like in our last uh series we did three years ago this will give us the benefit of being able to know what the topic is going to be um this may be a little bit of a secret about the podcast but we typically don't know what we're going to talk about until about five minutes before we sit down and actually record um that might be obvious to some of you and if not yes we are that smart um uh (laughs) but it's going to be really exciting uh, to be able to prepare for some of these topics and provide maybe a little bit more of a structured discussion on these topics. And uh, by no means will these probably be the three thing, only three things that go into this series. I hope that I of course hope that many new technologies emerge that help make a free society more viable that we can talk about. And uh, this might be one of those rare few times where I might shamelessly shell out and say, Hey, if you think you know of an immersion technology that you want to see us talk about on this show, we want to know about it. We want to know about it. Um, because this is a, I think a perfect nexus of our interests being both technology and freedom. Um, so, uh, really looking forward to it. Um, I don't really have anything else to say cause I don't want to give away too much about the topics at hand. Uh, do you have any words? I think we've done a good job talking about what we're going to talk about there we go yeah look at us um 
All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And hopefully, uh, by the time you're listening to this, we'll go right into the next topic. So next time, I guess we'll talk a little bit about strong cryptography. And I'm very much so looking forward to that. Sounds good. But for now, philosophers. Philosophers. If you like the music in this episode, please check out Jippy on Bandcamp at jippy.bandcamp.com. Philosophers is supported by viewers like you. If there's a topic you'd like us to discuss, or a topic you'd like to see revisited in the future, please let us know by contacting us using the methods in the description, or in the comments below. Thank you for listening.